0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as a very special guest, Cora John Warren, who is the Strategic Development Director for Rare Recruitment. Cora, would you mind giving us a quick 60 second rundown through your career and how you got to where you are, please?
1: Sure. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. So I joined Rare in 2009. I originally came across Rare as a candidate when I was at university. So thinking about jobs myself, I went for what was called our initial meeting, which gets you to think about the kinds of roles you might want to go for and left thinking, actually, that's where I want to work. I want to work at an organisation that supports people without sending them through kind of any quota-based model and helps them to work out what they want to do. And the rest is kind of history. So I joined in 2009. I've worked on every part of our business, and I currently head up our strategic development. So thinking about how we develop our products, how we develop our services, and and what we go on to offer to our clients.
0: So talk to me about why we should, uh, as employers, why we should consider recruiting diverse teams.
1: Sure. So the research shows, if you look at the latest report from McKinsey, for example, how inclusion matters, diverse companies make more money they Do better, they make bolder decisions. That's that's what the research shows. From a moral perspective and from my personal standpoint, I also think that we should represent what the United Kingdom, what our local areas, and whichever market you might be in look like. You want to get people from those backgrounds represented in with your organizations, particularly if you are they play a part as your customers or you are selling services to to, to those kinds of those people, they should be represented within your organization because how better to understand different markets if you don't have people from those backgrounds and i think that the organisations that are doing the best at that show that they make more money mckinsey puts a lot of money for example into their diversity initiatives their race specific diversity initiatives and and they produce reports like this because they they've seen a res- they've seen results there
0: i agree um you know i've clearly seen this in my career Ian dodd's who was responsible for bringing inclusion into ICI, turned dozens of factories around, and created massively inclusive and diverse teams. And net result of that was their profitability shot through the roof. I'm going to be interviewing Shelton Banks, who's the CEO of Rework Training. And he made a really interesting observation, which, again, came as a surprise. And it's no no surprise that it came as a surprise because of... Perspective of where I come from, that the African American community in the US has an annual spending power of $1.3 trillion. Let me repeat that $1.3 trillion. Now, as a VP of JP Morgan, he realized there was something wrong because when they were putting together target lists of people that they were going to prospect, whenever he was looking into largely non white areas, often the household income was very low. But his observation was that the house owner might be a 60-year-old granddad on nine thousand uh, pounds dollars a year, but there may be five or six other people living in that house who are earning between 40 and 80 thousand, and a lot of the spend in that economy is done through cash because they either don't trust or haven't been involved in the banking system, and they're used to dealing with cash, they're comfortable with it, and so they don't appear on the, uh, the records. And as a result of that, then that um, market is missed. And this then led me to think, if we want to recruit a diverse team, are we missing the means of communicating to them that we have access to so that we can access those candidates? I don't know whether diverse candidates would read the same publications. Um, I, I'm looking to recruit a team at the moment and I want non-salespeople. So mm-hmm. I'm looking to find you know ways to access those people so that we can attract them to my clients' companies. But I have no idea where to start. Maybe you can help me throw some light on that question because it's very current. I've got three teams I've got to build. <laughs> get a bit of free consulting
1: work for you right now yeah, Marcus, please, and I'll, I'll, I'll have a think about that just on the point you just made it, it made me laugh because my mother always I come from a mixed race background my father's from Senegal my mum is white British and the point you made about paying in cash, et cetera. My mom always says my dad would be a millionaire with all his money under his bed because he's deeply, deeply cynical of many of the, the institutions that we have here. So I I can totally see that. And having that kind of understanding does open you up to a different market. Having that kind of understanding does allow you to have conversations, groups of people, honest conversations, frank conversations, open conversations in a way that perhaps they've learned that they, they shouldn't with, with people from different backgrounds. I think that in terms of you thinking about recruiting teams, it depends how much experience you want them to have. And if you're saying you don't none. want them to have sales experience.
0: None z- zero point. sales experience. I want the blank slate. I want people with the right attitude. I want them to have the right values. I want them to be ambitious, hungry learners. Those are the sorts yeah. of people I know that I can develop quickly. But what I don't yeah. want is people who I have to get to unlearn a load of crap that they've you know, they spent years and decades doing badly.
1: I, I totally agree with that and I would then go for fresh graduates if you want people with university backgrounds. They don't necessarily have to, but the reason I would would recommend perhaps graduates is because you could then just go to that market. You could find you could find people from a university, for example, you could find people who have advertised that they're looking for roles. I've seen that quite a lot on LinkedIn at the moment. People who finished university, perhaps the market isn't where it they hoped it would be with what's happened with this pandemic. And they're thinking about roles. And if it were me, I would take a fresh grad for that kind of role every time. Somebody who's kind of unspoilt, as it were, hasn't learned the bad habits that you were talking about, yeah. has the drive, the potential, is really keen. And maybe other people aren't taking, giving them opportunities because they don't have relevant work experience. I would kind of go to that market, those markets every time. I can talk to you. I could bore you to death on the, the details of that. Perhaps I tell you about that afterwards because I'm not sure the listeners would be so interested <laughs> in exactly how you go and find them. But I can definitely give you some pointers on that.
0: Okay, so well, thank you for that. Let let me ask you this: What are the blind spots that employers have when looking at non uh, non white, uh, non standard uh, type of candidates that uh, may be creating unconscious bias?
1: So one of the blind spots is thinking about long term strategy. There is the approach to diversity is often a nice to have or very re- reactive in terms of, I need to find some Black candidates because there's been a Black Lives Matter resurgence and it's it's suddenly become a priority to me. But what does that mean? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve with, the, with, with those candidates? Um, recruitment is, the, is a good place to start. And it's where we started our business, thinking about pipelining candidates for trainee roles, graduate programs, all of those kinds of things. But the blind spots I often find is, and what do you want to do next? How do you want to retain these candidates? How do you want to not lose these people? How do you want to pipeline also at a lateral stage? And that's one thing that I've come up against a lot in, you know, over the last decade.
0: What do you mean by pipeline at a lateral stage?
1: So, sorry, a lateral stage is when you're thinking about bringing people in who have some experience. So the, the opposite of what you, you were just talking about. So if you lose people who are two, three years into their jobs and you need to replace people at that point in their teams, typically you look at people based on experience, which is not incorrect when you're looking at people at that stage. But are you seeing diverse candidates at that point then? So if you're losing all of your, let's say, black candidates three years after they've finished a graduate programme, are you then bringing that pipeline back in again at that stage? It's not just a a kind of one-size-fits-all approach. We'll send you some graduates and then your problem will be over. It's thinking about every stage of the recruitment process and also every stage of the retention process, the experience, the inclusion once those candidates are in there. And what's your long-term goal? Do you want to see people from these backgrounds ending up on your boards? Do you want to see these people making partner? Do you want to see these people getting to the most senior ranks of your firms or organizations? And if you do, what do you need to do to get there?
0: So it seems that career pathing right from the outset that just you know, is good practice anyway. But building diversity and inclusion into your policy and into your culture, that therefore probably means that there needs to be a shift in terms of who's on the panel when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to promoting, when it comes to designing the future of the business. But I don't see a lot of that happening. Um, Am I just not speaking to the right people or is it still something of a rarity?
1: Well, it's a rarity than that. Yes, yeah. Well, exactly. So, uh, you know, we hope it would be less rare at this point. But if you don't have a particularly diverse organisation, it's very hard to have a diverse recruitment panel, frankly. So that's that's kind of the point I'm making on thinking about this long term. Because if down the line you have managed to get, let's say, your senior management population looking more reflective of you know, the UK population, although better still if it's in London, the London population, then you are at a point when you're thinking about your recruitment panels where you can have better diversity. And that's that's on all from, from all elements, gender, sexuality and race. But many of the organisations that we talk to, particularly those who are thinking are in their very early stages of thinking about approaching these issues, just don't have that diversity. So what do you do then in order to bring those people in? There's quite a few things you can do. Thinking about unconscious bias training. There are many issues in unconscious bias training. I'll come on to talk to you about what we think about how we do it and what we offer. Making sure that you are trying to stick to an interview process that isn't just talking about, oh gosh, you went to this college, I went to this college too, did you, where you were blue, did you do that? And those kinds of processes lend themselves to just replicating having exactly the same types of people. Whereas where you can bring in a process that is more competency based or more focused on look, this is what we're looking for in this role and you need to answer these questions that match that organizations like the civil service fast stream for example do that very well focusing very much on meeting certain criteria in order to get the job where you can do that i think not having a diverse panel is is not such a problem
0: this is interesting because i think the language that people use and the underlying sensitivity I see adverts about being, you know, we're an equal opportunities employer, but I don't really see that in practice. I think that seems Mm -hmm. to be a way of ticking a box and appealing to sort of a a liberal woke community Mm -hmm. uh, that says, oh, well, you will only work with um, equal opportunities employers. But, you know, looking around, there are no black faces. There are a few disproportionately low number of women. And you see this on boards. Organizations that say that they're uh, fully inclusive and they're all white middle aged men uh, on the yeah. There has to be uh, a shift in thinking if you're going to capitalize. And th- this is what Felton was talking about. Forget all the quotas, forget all of that. Focus on the yeah. commercial value of bringing yeah. in absolutely rock solid, uh, rock star talent. And how can you help those people thrive in your environment? What needs yeah. to change culturally? at the board level, and then at a management level to make that happen.
1: It needs to become a business priority, like you said. It needs to not be a nice-to-have. You need to have people within that business realise that actually you will be more profitable. And it's not just, as you described them, liberal, woke community trying to shove things down, shove things down their throats. And when that happens, things do start to change. We've seen those changes with our clients, many, many, many of our clients. From a management perspective, it's understanding that there is difference and that that's not a problem. Understanding that you don't just want to hire in your own image because it's all well and even even where there are boards who do make it a business priority and it is really is really important. If you don't have that belief and understanding there from people within the organisation, then that's not going to change. If they're resentful to that, if the words positive discrimination are bandied around more than actually I haven't seen one black person walk through this door, then that's you the, the problem won't be fixed at that point and that's that's what I was saying about the retention because you can hire as many graduates as you want and many organizations don't to be clear but if you do that but then those kind of those people get there and it's not an inclusive environment or it's not somewhere that they look up and they think there's no way I'm ever going to make it here I'm going to go somewhere else thanks for the, the great training experience I'll leave now then it's it's not going to change so it's got to come through every part of the organization it's got to be important it's got to be based in data. You've got to know your numbers. This is what, you know, my black candidates or my minority ethnic candidates are leaving 20% earlier than their white peers. Why is that? What do we do to fix that? Knowing where to stage interventions in order to make sure that all of that effort you're putting into pipelining these candidates, if you are even doing that, isn't lost. And therefore, you will then get, once you get those candidates, getting to the point of management hopefully, the board at some point, then when you've got diversity there, then it 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 should flow through more naturally in the way it has with white people hiring white people.
0: One of uh, my former candidates and clients, I tried to help him get a job at a client. They didn't hire him, and he was streets ahead of every other candidate and uh, ended up parting ways with the client within a couple of weeks of that. I was just so disgusted. But just helped him find another job. And one of the things that he said, or two things that he said that were really interesting, were that if he put an idea forward, it would often be described as not strategic enough. And then Mm. if a white counterpart put the same idea verbatim forward, it'll be the most strategic idea ever. And I had the same comment come from Jen Ferguson, who's a very big activist for uh, women in sales, the same uh, question or same issue being uh, placed there. And The other uh, thing is around pay, uh, particularly at the start. This chap was saying that uh, in one of his previous roles, he had a new manager come in, and the first thing he did was raise his basic salary by 10 grand, because he was performing. His Mm. white counterparts were not, but they were getting paid 10 grand more. They're doing a mm-hmm. bad job in the same role. Now, again, what can be done at an executive level to ensure that that kind of bias doesn't creep in? Because it, it, that must be, first of all, demoralizing. And yeah. secondly, it sends a signal, we, don't, we really don't believe any of the crap that you lot are touting, because if you were equal opportunities and you were into diversity, you wouldn't behave like this.
1: So there are two things. One is we have designed something called the Race Fairness Commitment because fundamentally, what we're asking for when people are talking about positive discrimination or unfairness or you know trying to push people up um, who perhaps wouldn't otherwise be seen, we aren't doing any of that. We're asking for fairness at work for people from all backgrounds. And the example you gave on salary is key because that happens a lot. And what our Race Fairness Commitment asks from a board level down every level of management to be looking at if you sign up to it and you commit to doing this and we advise that organizations who sign up to it publish their data on on where they are with race that you are looking at things like are black candidate staff members who are performing at the same level or in your example better than their white peers at the same level is there pay equity? Are they being paid the same amount or or more if they're performing better? Or are they being paid less? And I think in many occasions, you'd find they're being paid less for a whole host of reasons. There's bias, but there's also negotiating confidence that you might get from having family in in professional jobs in, in certain industries. But this mandates that there's fairness at work and that people who are on you know in the senior echelons of your firm people who are on the board are looking at this and making sure that you're sticking to it it also allows people from minority ethnic backgrounds to hold their organizations accountable you have signed this race fairness commitment you have backed it i don't see any of this happening and you can go to your organization and say look you've said you're doing this what are you doing about it um there are about 30 organizations who signed up to this um at this point and i think it's it's, I'm really proud of what we've achieved and proud to have got firms thinking and organisations thinking in this way. The second is your kind of point on bias. And the first thing I'd like to say on this, bias makes people very nervous. The idea of someone saying you're a racist, it makes people, which is, is, is not the intention, but that makes people very nervous. We all have bias. Every single one of us has bias. There is, I don't know a person who won't because we are impacted by the everyday goings on around us. So that might be that you are from a community that doesn't have isn't particularly diverse, you don't really hang around with diverse people, you don't really know those people, and therefore you, you you don't have interaction with them. It might be that the media represents, for example, black men or Muslims in a certain way. And that's all impacting our feelings about groups that we aren't familiar with. And very simply, our amygdala, our fight or flight, goes into it kind of fires up when we meet somebody from a group that we aren't comfortable with rather than the rational part of our brains. And so what we've been working on at rare is trying to overcome that, trying to retrain that. let's let's look at the science behind this. Why are, why do people have bias? What people describe as unconscious bias? Why do people have that? Hemisphere, which is unconscious bias software that we designed, we spent the last 5 years designing it and let me be clear we used to do in person unconscious bias training and we thought we were quite good at it and then we realized that we don't really think it works we you tell a room full of people that they have bias and then you leave them to either feel guilty about it or to think oh well, that was nonsense this tests candidate tests people who are taking the hour using our software it tests them on who they have biased against by looking at candidates in real live interview and then hearing the same answers again read in a more typically BBC Radio Four voice and sees do you do you have bias towards black candidates against black candidates do you have bias against candidates from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds do you have bias against women for example and then once you see that score you are then you then go through some kind of positive evalu- evaluative conditioning which is simply. Here's some exposure to people from these groups that don't fit into the stereotype of what you have kind of been presented with, i.e., black success stories, i.e., social mobility success stories, and then you get a number of kind of education tips and tips on management. Following doing that, we've also synthesised this product so that it is available to a broader group of organisations who don't perhaps have the the budgets to pay what some of the the, the top graduate employers. Pay for for a service like this, we have synthesized that into the education videos, some learning on good management, good interviewing, so that you just watch that rather than it being a response to your specific test. And so I think those are two ways of really getting on top of this issue and showing that you are committed to change.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, um, when we had our initial chat, I mentioned Mm. Project Implicit, which is the Harvard Implicit Association Test looking at bias. How is this different?
1: It's not based on reaction time. So reaction time, we got a a grant called the Innovate grant, which was £100,000 because the Innovate felt that we were doing something innovative enough that will change how people look at unconscious bias. And so as part of this five-year process, we've looked at what else is on the market, how do people use the IOT? We did actually, one of our very early designs use reaction time. But we think that there are faults to that approach because you're not necessarily getting to a consistent measure on your bias. I get the idea that there's kind of a gut reaction to, to people from these backgrounds, but actually looking in the scenarios that you are going to be interviewing or managing in, so watching candidates live in interview, watching um, candidates live in a kind of corporate environment, and then scoring them against what you perhaps think is a, a typically corporate voice, has we've, we've seen that. 80% of the users in the trial, of over 100 users in the trial, had their biases disrupted, i.e. they had a bias towards a certain, against a certain group. And once they've been retested, which we're no longer doing the product that was for the trial, that bias had been disrupted, had been reduced. Really very interesting.
0: OK. would be keen to explore that, but we'll talk about that offline. OK. So let me ask you this. As a fat, old, middle-aged white man it could be very easy for me to be uncomfortable and skirt around the topic mm-hmm. and so again i think there are a lot of people out there who would like to be uh, fairer who would like to yeah. employ a more diverse range of talent they're afraid of treading on a landmine how can we avoid that um, and what you know what is it that we need to do as employers to just get comfortable having you know open, honest conversations with people without yeah. fearing that we're going to end up either in court or uh, splashed over the front of the Daily Mirror.
1: Sure, the term you use, comfortable. I mean, the fact that you refer to yourself as a, a white man is a is a starting yeah. point. It,
0: it's, it, it, it was it was more colourful than that, but yeah, it
1: was more colourful than that. But <laughs> I'm making the point on white. Um, I don't have any points on the other on the on the other colour. But is that a place of discomfort for many people? I don't know if you remember the reaction to Jon Snow and the Brexit march talking about, I've never seen so many white people. And there was real shock and horror to that. And he wasn't saying, in in my opinion, there were only white people at this march. He was saying there were a lot of white people. And my mother, who is a white woman, I said to her, why do white people get so, kind of so horrified by being referred to or referring to themselves as white? And she said, because we've never had to. We don't think of ourselves as white. We think of ourselves as clever or funny or you know maybe maybe not always positive maybe you know feeling sad at the moment or an athlete but she was like we don't think of ourselves as our race whereas we kind of categorize everybody else within their within their race and that's the reason I make that point is because if you want to have an honest discussion about race you need to realize that you have a race yourself and be comfortable talking about that be comfortable talking about white people alongside talking about black people and Asian people um And also embrace the discomfort. There is going to be some discomfort in talking about race. It's very, very uncomfortable as a black person or a person from a minority ethnic background to be asked to talk about your race to a group of people who you often know probably don't really understand it. And so they are asked to embrace that discomfort. So I'd recommend that people embrace their discomfort too. And know that there are lots of organisations who just are pretending that they don't need to talk about race at all, or who are making statements on their websites, but not actually... Doing anything internally, so, for candidates from these backgrounds, from these minority ethnic backgrounds, to have someone have an open conversation, to have somebody say to them, "How is it working in this organization as a as a black person?" are you, do you are you happy to talk to me about that And if you are I'd love to know I don't think there you'd get a negative reaction to that. You certainly wouldn't from from me or the candidates that I speak to um, because they're they're desperate for it. They're desperate for someone to acknowledge that it is a different experience for them. I'll give you one example. There's a guy that we placed at an organization that I won't name, Black Man. And every time he goes onto a certain floor to kind of join client meetings, he's asked to fill up the tea and coffee because the assumption is that if he's there, that's what he's there to do. Those kinds of little... May seem little to some people, I think it's pretty bad, but those kinds of slights that you deal with on a daily basis, they have an impact on how you feel about work, how good a job you do about work. And I imagine if he had the confidence to tell the management at that organization that that was his daily experience, that they would want to do something about it. And so if somebody asked him, What could you change? Imagine what he'd say.
0: The chap I was talking about earlier was going for an interview a couple of years back and he mentioned in passing that he'd just had his second child, to which the interviewer's response was, oh, do you get to see him much? Now, as a white candidate, if someone had asked me that, I would have just looked puzzled. When he confronted it, the guy sort of backtracked. But the fact that anyone would even ask that, just because there is this general perception through the media... That uh, black fathers don't see their kids very often because then they're uh, normally estranged or live uh, live apart. Mm. Uh, but how dare somebody even bring that up? It just strikes me as being offensive and ignorant at a, a base level.
1: Yeah, but it happens a lot. And actually, I think those kinds of examples, which to to me and you, are perhaps very clear that it's about race. But somebody else say, "Oh, I would have asked anybody that that question." Those <laughs> kinds of daily comments. Are the things that when you're working an organization, particularly when you're working in an organization where you're working long hours, you are working really hard to prove yourself, and you're thinking, I'm getting comments like this every day. What's the point in continuing here? Why don't I go to this other job? You know, why should I be loyal to these people? Why shouldn't I go to the person who's just headhunted me and said they're gonna, you know, add another 50, my salary by 50% again to what they pay me there? It's those kinds of those kinds of comments that, that take a toll when it happens all the time. I, I don't know if you've come across the term microaggressions, um, but lots yeah. of organisations are talking about microaggressions at, at the moment, and it's those kinds of daily slights that people get because they are somebody from a different background. I'll give you an example. I often get we're going to meet somebody and they'll say, "Oh, you're so articulate." And I think that's not really a compliment, is it? Because you're surprised <laughs> that I am. Um, and why are, you? why are you surprised? And it doesn't bother me because my organisation isn't like that. I, My boss isn't like that. I work in a, a great place. But if I were very stressed, not necessarily particularly enjoying my job and getting comments like that all the time, then you start to get sick of it. And there's an example that we I've, I've seen of um, talking about microaggressions as mosquito bites. So, you know, if you go on holiday you get one mosquito bite, it's not too bad. You know, you put some cream on it. You're still going to enjoy the beach and the sea. If you get 150, then the holiday starts to become less appealing and you you just want to leave. And those things happening on a daily basis make you want to leave.
0: Understood. Okay. So what are the three questions employers should be asking that they are not of themselves?
1: One is, I suppose, to my blind spot point, how do I get, I'm investing and thinking about bringing candidates from different backgrounds in. How do I get these people to the top of my organisation? How do I change my interview panels? How do I get them to stay? So I suppose a kind of inclusi- inclusivity point. The next is, and I don't I don't know how, how much exposure you've had to this, but what I've really admired about what I've seen many organisations doing with their diversity teams is things like LGBT allies. So when I think about 10 years ago to now and thinking about how the LGBT community is discussed within a lot of the organizations that I've come across, not necessarily clients, some of them clients, they've come so far and they've people talk about allies and people have somebody that they can go to if they feel that they've experienced the kind of slights, or in a more extreme case, you know, very clear homophobia. They have somebody to, to speak to. And i we haven't until very recently until the Black Lives Matter resurgence, talked about that for the black community. Because particularly to your earlier point about where you don't have that diverse representation throughout the organisation, who do I go to to talk about the tea and coffee situation? Who do I go to to say, this guy said to me, do you see your child very often? And I think that one thing that people who care about this and want to make a difference in their organisations could do is thinking about being a good ally and asking us, how do I how can I be a good ally and what can I do from that and then I suppose the third is how can I be I spoke about being an ally how can I be actively anti-racist it's all well and good not being racist but how can I actively make sure that I promote an environment that is anti-racist that doesn't accept racism that doesn't have the kinds of comments that we've been discussing being made because it gets to a point where you just you know, in the 1950s, the comments that and, and there still are negative comments made about women, don't get me wrong, but they ca- imagine if you walked into the office, the kinds of comments that have been being made about women um, would be very different to what you hear nowadays. How do we get to that point? How do we get people thinking that they need to be actively anti-racist?
0: Those are great questions. Okay, help me understand this then. If one doesn't have a lot of contact with black and minority ethnic um, or LGBT folks, then you can't necessarily see the world through their eyes. Now, personally, Mm -hmm. I think having their perspective is incredibly Mm -hmm. powerful. And a a wonderful example was in Matthew Syed's book, Uh, Rebel Ideas. And Mm -hmm. in there, he talks about how the CIA had no Arabic and no Farsi speakers. Mm -hmm. So pre-9-11, when Osama bin Laden was uh, uh, being uh, recorded and quoted, uh, quoting poetry or speaking in poetry, they were just basically writing him off as some crank living in a cave. And uh, they didn't understand that in Islam, using poetry is the highest form of communication. And net result of that was they couldn't see the big picture. They couldn't see the whole picture. And he cites an example of taking a fish tank And you have a Japanese audience and an American audience. And the American audience will describe the fish. The Japanese Mm. audience will describe the ambiance of the tank, so the gravel, the bubbles, the plants. And if you don't have both of them, you don't get the whole picture. Really interestingly, there's a lady called Amy Brown who runs a company called Authentics, which is a customer experience company. And Mm. what they do is they monitor and they, uh, they measure and track the conversations, ten billion conversations a year, in call centers going into the American health system for their clients, and in order to ensure that they've eliminated as much bias as possible, they have a team of social scientists who are monitoring the uh, the calls. They're training the AI so that they've got those cultural references to begin with, and it's allowing them to recruit more effectively within their call centers. And sales go up, yeah, anything 28 to 40%, because now they're actually engaging with people where they are instead of trying to get them to you know, fit, make the square peg fit into the round hole or missing the references, missing the social pressures that these people are under. And I, I think what I'm really interested in, in terms of where we take this conversation, is as technology becomes more and more part of recruitment, how do we ensure that we don't end up with the Amazon? Uh, was it Amazon? or Yeah, I think it was Amazon. Uh, I ran a recruitment program uh, using AI. But because the AI was looking for patterns, they ended up recruiting sort of, uh, early 20 to mid-30 male yeah. coders. So how do we make sure that the technology in recruitment, in HR, actually allows for diversity, allows for inclusion, and wheedles out the biases?
1: So some of what we do is technology, chemistry is a technology product, the contextual recruitment system, which is a social background, is a product and looks specifically at outperformance and then flagging different types of disadvantage. So there's ways of doing it in that in on that front. AI, I'm less of an expert in, but what I would say is with AI, it's all about what the human beings who have started it off have plugged into it. So if you don't have a very diverse group of people telling deciding what those patterns are, then you certainly won't get a very different outcome when when you've plugged in the AI, because it's looking for the same type of person. What I would say, and this is for AI and, and not AI, this is just recruitment processes in general, listening to what the person has said rather than how they have said it. So particularly where you're working in, you're thinking about a graduate program where that person's going to be trained up, or an early entry, an early careers program where that person is going to be trained up, and perhaps the way that they talk in the interview isn't you know, is the end of the world. It's actually about the raw potential, which is certainly what I look for. What that person has said is far more important than how that person has said it. And often in interview processes, and I imagine they are too, they're looking for patterns of fitting into a current model. So moving away from that as much as possible will change things for Minority ethnic candidates, which is what we're talking about today, black candidates, but you know, for more diverse groups in general. And I think if you don't disrupt that pattern, um, the patterns of what people are looking for, both in person and with AI, then you're not really going to change who you're looking, who who you bring through the door. Excellent.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. Tell me this: what what are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with?
1: Well. Personally, being a mum of a two-year-old and renovating the house at the same time in a <laughs> pandemic wasn't ideal, but I'm sure that's not what you want to hear about. But that's probably my number one struggle. Professionally, it's the, it's the complete strategy point that I've mentioned a couple of times. It's thinking about not just when things like... So we've been inundated with requests since the Black Lives Matter resurgence. And some of them are very serious, and I think we'll go on to do brilliant things for organisations. Some of them, you know, we have a little laugh in the office when someone calls up and was like, I'm looking for one babe. And we're like, oh God. Um so these, <laughs> those, those kinds of things are, are painful and a bit of a struggle. But they I make that point because it's it reflects a lack of strategy, a lack of long-term strategy, a, a thinking about what we can do in the short term. And there's nothing wrong with some short-term thinking if you then develop that into medium and long-term thinking. So I encourage our clients to think about executive coaching for these candidates where they don't have networks of people who are within the industry. I encourage them to think about mentoring and sponsoring. And if you can, as an organisation, do it for everybody. If you're particularly targeting a group that you are struggling to um, to keep, then then do it for that group. To think about training people who are managers and interviewers on managing kind of diverse talent and. I've had many, many people ask me, and some of them say to me, I'm very uncomfortable with this term white privilege. Those people are, and that's probably just a lack of understanding, but if you are feeling that discomfort, you don't understand why your organization is moving towards thinking, focusing more on this element of diversity and you are managing and you are interviewing, what does that mean for the people who are from different backgrounds who are experiencing you as an interviewer or manager? So that's probably kind of my, biggest professional struggle, but I quite like those struggles because it's usually how we come up with our solutions and advise our clients in the best way that we can.
0: Are there frameworks or structures or resources that people can access in order to get that thinking fast-tracked? Because um, if you don't know where to start and you don't know which questions to ask, chances are you're going to be either asking the wrong questions or asking questions from the perspective that created the problem.
1: Sure. So big plug here, us. But when I say that, actually, the biggest resource, the best resource that I would think will help most listeners is free. It's the race fairness commitment. Look at that structure and think about what you are doing within your organization to think about how you want to think about your long-term strategy. Then it doesn't entirely have to be external partnerships. But if you do have an external partner who can help you to keep thinking and and kind of driving forward your strategy on race, then, then that helps we have written as well as the race fairness commitment a commitment for recruitment agencies as well so that when people are using recruitment agencies race diversity is at the forefront of their minds too because historically it hasn't had to be um and that helps people not to recruit in the same image the final thing is trying to make your interview process and and this is i've mentioned hemisphere and anyone who's listening we'd be very happy to talk more about that but um, if you're not at that stage yet, then the first thing is thinking about making your recruitment process as little as possible about oh, I'm gonna build connections with this person based on similarities and about finding out whether that person would be a fit for the job. If you love a build the connections process, then you need to be able to build connections with people from different backgrounds, not just those who have commonalities with you.
0: Interesting. Okay. Again. I'm really curious to find this out. In the context of an interview, how does one have a conversation? Because you're, you're sincere, you're committed to creating a diverse mm-hmm. environment. How do you have a conversation in an interview without appearing either trite or woke or offending? Again, the the, the balance here, I think, is a lot of people will be afraid of screwing it up or yeah, yeah. up in a tribunal. And they, you know they, that's not the intent. For yeah. me as a hiring manager, that's a genuine concern if I'm yeah, going to hey, yeah. do this. So help me.
1: Yeah. So what I'd say is where possible, don't with everybody. Like you know, you know, if you are actually just thinking, focusing on the on the the job in terms of what you are interviewing, your criteria, then that's the best thing possible. You are we are human beings, we are not robots. We are, want to have conversations, we want to talk to people about commonality. So when you do that, if you're walking from the I say walking from with everything's online now, but in the in the not so distant past when you're walking from the waiting room, for example, the reception to the interview room and you're having a conversation with someone and it happens to, they ask you about the rugby yesterday and you happen to like the rugby too. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's always going to be human interaction. Try to take a step back after the interview. Take a moment. Don't just mark them as you're going along. Take a step back and think about what time of day did I do that interview? Was I tired? Was I hungry? Was I, about to, was I Did I want lunch? And I, that person kind of annoyed me because I wanted to get out of there. Was I just wowed by the fact that that guy knows everything about these rugby stats and that's my interest too? What did he actually say? What did he say in that interview? And what did that guy who I felt a little bit more uncomfortable with say as well? You know, let's compare them kind of like for like on those questions. And I think that's, that's really, really important. On building relationships with people who come from different backgrounds you you want to avoid things like you know I've had an often where are you from No, where are you really from you don't you don't need to ask someone about that to find out about them you can ask them to to tell me a bit about yourself tell me the things that you'd like me to know about you forget work for a second what do you want me to know about you personally and then things come up like I'm really interested in basketball or I'm really interested in post-colonial literature or you know I love to bake and the conversation will flow from there without you having to ask uncomfortable questions.
0: It's interesting. I mean, and um, the, the framework that I use for recruitment focuses on things like habits, values, beliefs, attitudes, their ability to adapt, resilience. And I was interviewing Erin Bell from DeGreed and Michael Puck from Kronos. And a couple of oh. questions came up which they uh, implement in the onboarding process. But I think it's also important in the recruitment process. And one is what's your most important life experience? Because I think that will flush mm-hmm. out where people have come from and um, yeah. it'll give you indications. It's a subtle way of trying to gain understanding. Uh, but more importantly, to allow people to be heard. Because I think inclusiveness yeah. is really about uh, having people's opinions being valued Another great question is, uh, what do you want your career to give you in life? Because, again, that gives an, a strong indication of motivation and what their drivers are. And I think we have to be pragmatic about this. You know, If you want to build a really successful business, there was the research that was done on the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016. And this was looking at highly engaged employees. And the difference between highly engaged and mildly engaged and actively disengaged isn't necessarily clear. But highly engaged employees deliver 430% higher profit per
1: employee,
0: 290% higher revenue. There's a 40% lower churn rate and a 20% higher level of productivity. And the share price of companies with highly engaged employees was over 300% higher annual growth than... The other businesses. Now, I believe that diversity and inclusion and genuinely meaning it, about creating a genuine meritocracy, hiring people for their capability and their talent, and uh, having strong uh, high level of trust uh, if we're looking at trust quotient versus capability quotient, Joe Mullings, uh, in particular, is a real uh, really fabulous example of this in the recruitment world. Where he will go for a high trust and average capability, because capability can be trained. And this Mm -hmm. is why skills, experience, and historical results, I don't believe, are great predictors of success. You only have to look at the number of people who hire in that way. And then they have a revolving door because they've been highly disappointed by people who are successful elsewhere once or twice. They need to have a habit of success. And I'm really interested to see how we can elevate recruitment. Because I, I fundamentally believe recruitment is the single most important function of any manager. If you recruit the best people and then you spend all of your time getting the best out of them, ninety five to ninety eight percent of your management problems go out the window, you end up with highly engaged employees who give a mass of discretionary effort, and that's really the difference. Because if people feel valued, if they feel yeah. that their opinions are important, they're heard um, and that they have a voice, they will work harder for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and commercially it makes sense. And the loyalty factor um you know in the interview with Erin Bell, uh, she said that the, uh, the managers who gave her that voice were the ones that she really hated to disappoint. so she would yeah. work harder and harder to make sure that she didn't. So yeah, I'm curious I, to wrap this up on that point.
1: Sure. What, what I, I completely agree with that. And it's why I've stayed at Rare from graduating. I've gone off to a number of clients and done comments, and, and thought, oh, maybe I'll try this and always come back because that's exactly what our MD did. Gave me a voice and made me want to work hard for him. And that's not just a recruitment point. I agree with your recruitment, but it's also a management point. One, the thing that I hear from friends all the time when they leave jobs, it's usually for one of two reasons. One, salary, they just don't think they can move up there, promotion and salary. Or two, their manager is making their, their lives a living hell. And if you're managing people from any background, my, my recommendation is that you make them feel heard and you praise them and you show that they're brilliant rather than being nervous about That person kind of nipping at your heels because fundamentally that person's going to make your job easier. If your team is doing a fantastic job and that team happens to be a very diverse team, it's only going to reflect well on you. And those people, when they see that loyalty, they see that commitment that you've mentioned, they will will continue to work hard for you, they will want to do a good job, and they'll have honest conversations with you and tell you if they're thinking about what they want to do next in their career and see if you can help them to achieve that too. So I agree. I agree on your recruitment point. But I think once you've got those people in, how you treat them is, is just as important.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, this is like making sales and then losing customers. Um, yes. you know, if you hire somebody, you want to retain them. And yes. when, when I look at the turnover rates in sales, you know, salespeople turn over 12 to 18 months in if they make it right. that far. And uh, I was joking with somebody earlier on uh, last week. There's a, a book going on uh, who gets fired first. Is it the SDR? So the sales development rep who's cold calling, dialing for dollars, or is it the VP of sales? Because their revolving door is really quick as well. If you don't understand that as a manager, your job is to build the best team and have them perform to their peak performance, and it's your responsibility to help them to do that, they don't work for you. You work for them. And uh, when you're a leader, Your job is to help the whole organization raise their performance, raise their game. Growth happens to be a byproduct of being able to do that. So tell me this, is there anything that you would recommend people read, watch, listen to in order to be a better recruiter, a better employer, more inclusive, fairer?
1: Sure. So my recommendation might be a bit kind of left field here, but I think they're important because... I hear a lot of the certain names thrown out and they are brilliant, you know, John Amici, et cetera, brilliant. And you should go and look at those. But I want people to hear something maybe slightly different today. Kolechi Okafor, she on Instagram is called Kolechnikov, And I spend a lot of my time getting references from, from social media now, because with my two-year-old, I don't read like I, I once did. But she is raw. She's unfiltered. She says it as it is. And it can, for, I imagine for some people, it's not for me. For some people, it might be an uncomfortable Listen. But if you want to know what the black experience is like, I'd recommend listening to her. She also does something that is tongue-in-cheek, which I find very funny, that's called Sally and HR, where she's an Instagram page and she does impressions of an HR person talking to people from different ethnic backgrounds and the kinds of things that they deal with. These are the kinds of stories that my friends and I tell each other and laugh about because you have to laugh or cry. And I think it's really important for people from different backgrounds to hear these things. Carla has spoken about. All the time he's brilliant i listen and to sorry, speaker, who is that akala aka la he's written a book called natives i would highly recommend that i had the joy of getting to hear him speak at um, ashurst black history month event last year and i'd recommend him strongly and the final is is and you're probably thinking none of these are self-specific but i think if you get these if you see these references from people from these communities you just Understand them better, you will sell to those communities better, and you will hire better from those communities. The final is um one, something that I watched last week. I don't know if you know of Mo the Comedian. He had a program last put launched a program last week called Black British and Funny. And hearing from a number of black comedians on their experience of comedy, of the comedy circuit over the last 40 years, it's fascinating and I think a really good insight into, into the community and the kinds of they refer to them as glass ceilings that they're even even experiencing within that industry. They also did a really interesting bit on early 2000s comedy, things like Ali G, things like Bo Selector. And I've seen a lot of writing about that at the moment, people apologizing for it or people thinking people shouldn't have to apologize for it. And He quite simply talks about just taking a look and thinking, were we laughing with them, Black people, or were we laughing at them? And I, I found it pretty profound. So those would be my recommendations
0: fabulous cura this has been incredibly insightful and i hope that i can have you back if that uh, you're up for that
1: yeah sure i've I've, i'm going to steal some of your interview questions marcus so Um, (laughs) i've I've, I've learned a lot too Excellent. so i really appreciate you inviting me to speak today
0: okay well look for a final slightly cheeky question if you could go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot cura age 23 one bit of choice advice that she would probably ignore, what would it be?
1: (laughs) It would be to be more comfortable talking about difference. And what I mean here is when I started at Rare, I was, you know, 21, 22, but even at 23, conversations I'd have and with, with white friends, with white family members about positive discrimination, I kind of felt not that comfortable talking about what I did and not that comfortable challenging people on their ideas. And my advice would be challenge more talk about difference and don't be apologetic because I've got to that point now and I think I'm much better at my job
0: (laughs) I think a lot of people are afraid of conflict but they don't understand the difference between destructive and constructive conflict yes and they also don't understand how to stay out of the drama triangle so the the drama drama
1: triangle Tell me about the drama triangle. Definitely. Right,
0: the, the drama triangle describes every broken, fucked up, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a right. And it's one of the most elegantly astute observations of the human condition. So if you imagine a triangle on its point, and at the mm-hmm. bottom, you have the voice of the victim. Why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. And their favorite refrain is, save me. And then on the top left, you have the persecutor. And that comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capital letters because it diminishes you at an identity level at who you are. You piece of shit, you always, you never, you're such a disappointment. Uh, Women drivers, you're all the same, yeah? Right. Um, And so it's um, attacking uh, who you are. And -hmm. then you have actually what I think is the most divisive, which is the rescuer. And rescuers, by definition, help without boundaries or permission. So they often will come in the form of a micromanager, or they will diminish you because they will just check your work because they Mm -hmm. don't trust you. And they'll do things without asking your permission. And it's really interesting. I've done a couple of interviews uh, very recently. The latest one was with Michael Grinder, who is John Grinder's brother, uh, the, the co creator, creator of NLP. And he talks about this thing called the house of communication. And the highest level in the house of communication is permission. And uh, for the last 17 years, I've learned the critical importance of permission in selling. When you interrupt someone, get their permission. When you're asking them a difficult question, get their permission. To move on, get their permission and find out what the other person needs and wants and meet them where they are. So what happens is you can go round this. In fact, I, I had a fight with my wife without actually including her. One evening, she uh, said to me on a Friday, um, I'm going to decorate the living room. Now, in my family, DIY stands for Don't Involve Yourself. I just kissed her goodnight and went to sleep. And the following morning, about 11.36, I thought, oh, God, I better go down and find out if she wants any help. So anyway, I said, went down, I poked my head around the living room door, and I said, do you want any help? And he said, only if you want to. So what I read that as is go to the the garage and pick up uh, the bucket and brushes and get on with it. So off I went. And as I was walking to the uh, garage, a little voice in my head said, how the hell did she rope me into this? I hate DIY. I've been on my feet most of the week. I'm knackered. The plan was to fall asleep in front of the TV with some chocolate and some beer and spend the day dozing. I'll show her. So I went from victim from rescuer to victim to persecutor and then I was ripping off little pieces of wallpaper and there was a cloud and thunder and lightning over my head and after about eight <laughs> or nine minutes she looked across and said Marcus there's something wrong you don't seem <laughs> to be engaged in this activity you know are you okay and I said well straight back into victim uh, well you know I had a hard week and you know I've been training for four days and you know, I just wanted to spend the day in bed and her response kind of floored me and I felt The minuscule at at this, when she said, I know you've had a hard week, and I haven't seen you at all, and I thought it would just be nice for the two of us to spend some time doing something together. Now, I managed to have this entire fight without involving her, and that just describes how messed up we are. Now, the the antidote is something called the winner's triangle. Now, if you imagine another triangle underneath, but this time it's on its flat base, and on the left-hand side, you have the voice of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And the root of vulnerable is the Latin word vulnerabilis, which means to put yourself in harm's way, make yourself woundable and do it anyway. So it is an act Mm -hmm. of courage. On the bottom right, you have assertive, which doesn't mean aggressive. It just means that you know where to draw the line. So you set a boundary. And uh, the top point is nurturing and empathic. Now, if you operate from there in life, in communication, in management, in sales, Funnily enough, you don't end up in fights. You do end up in constructive conflict quite often because the assertive piece means that you draw the line. But it's really difficult. It's the hardest thing I ever taught any of my clients is to operate from that women's triangle because the minute you find any attachment, it tends to drag you into the drama triangle and ego thrives on drama. So, anytime mm. you take any one of those positions of victim, persecutor, or a rescuer, you are now fully into a drama battle that's being fueled by your ego. And if you manage to hook the other person's ego, then you end up in this battle between mm-hmm. two pissed off parents, two kids, and there's no adult. One of the services I've been offering for years is I rent an adult because <laughs> where, where, where you have to deal with this conflict. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But the challenge is to get people to communicate, to listen. This is the other thing that really flabbergasted me, that we are not routinely trained in how to listen effectively. And I think all managers should be trained in listening and listening with the intent of not only the transfer of meaning, but the transfer of emotion and mm. to help other people be heard. One of my mentors, a guy called Dr. Mark Goulston, who wrote a book. uh, Let me give you a recommendation. It's called Just Listen by Mark Goulston. Uh, Truly brilliant uh, book. And if you are a member of the species, you need to read this book. And he Uh says, all human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. And if you understand that as a recruiter, as a manager, as a leader, as a salesperson, as a parent, you will find that your life improves immeasurably.
1: I love all of that. Thank you so much. That is the most valuable conversation I've had today.
0: Thank you. And it's only midday, so there's plenty of room for better. <laughs> well,
1: what? yeah, that's true. It's most probably the most valuable conversation I've had in a while, actually, but <laughs> it's you. really, really helpful. I was fishing for really a compliment. My victim kicked in. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's quite good that came Great. just after triangle triangle references, wasn't it? But.
0: <laughs> I, I thought I thought I'd demonstrate it. Kira, this has been <laughs> incredibly insightful. I, I'm so looking forward to our next chat. And um, how can people get a hold of you?
1: So LinkedIn, if you're interested in following, anything, this send me a message on LinkedIn. It takes me a little while to get back to them, but I will get back to you. Um, the other place is info at rare recruitment. Say that you want to get in touch with me, and I will get back to you
0: excellent and uh what was that tool uh, that you've developed called again
1: Racefairnesscommitment.com. dot com.
0: and and the technology platform
1: hemisphere. hemisphere so you can find anything about any of our platforms on rare recruitment.co.uk
0: wonderful courage John warren thank you thank you this is Marcus Cowkey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful, illuminating, then please comment, like, and share. If you have questions for either Kura or myself, then please do get in touch. And you can email me at marcus at last or via LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling and happy recruiting as well. Bye-bye.